Greetings, and indeed, salutations. And welcome to the Silence is Golden podcast, your place for discussion, analysis, and all-around geeking out about silent cinema. I'm Brett Odom. And I'm Bryce Odom. And Bryce, this is our first episode. It really is, isn't it? I'm excited. I would hope so. That's fair. Well, we're, uh, what we're going to be doing, of course, today is starting this journey in discussion of silent cinema. You can find us on Twitter at SilenceGoldPod, or email us at silencesgoldenpodcast at gmail.com. Bryce, where can they find you? Well, uh, I'm a published author of some short stories and things and poetry and things of that nature, so they can find me at my website, jbryceodom.com, and also have a YouTube channel where I generally geek out about literature. Uh, that's jbryceodom underscore author. That's great. Well, we're going to go ahead and dive into this, and we're going to start this journey on Silence is Golden with what is arguably the greatest silence film of all time, Battleship Potemkin from 1925. That's a, that's a bit early. That That's going to be a trend uh, when you're dealing with silence films. It turns out they stopped making them all that often once they could do talkies. Oh, that's where we went wrong. Yeah, I mean, that's fair as well. Uh, so like I said, we're going to start here with 1925. Battleship Potemkin. It was directed and co-written by Sergei Einstein uh, and produced by Moss Film. Hey guys, Brett from the future cutting in here. Yes, we are aware we mispronounced Sergei Eisenstein's name right there. We had to type in our notes and then we just ran with it. So we're going to do that throughout the episode, but his name is Sergei Einstein and we know and we're sorry. Back to the show. And it's Sergei Einstein is one of the great directors of the Soviet of Soviet film. And just to be clear, no relation to Albert? No relation to okay, Albert. Okay, no relation to Albert. Okay. No. Uh, but it is important to note, of course, like I said, he is a master of Soviet film. Uh, this this is definitely from the period of high, of high Soviet realism, Soviet montage techniques. This is a work of propaganda. Uh, and it's important to go ahead and be upfront with that. But the remarkable thing about this movie, of course, is that it managed to rise above being a mere propaganda film. It received wide acclaim across international boundaries uh, in the U.S., in uh, throughout Europe, even even before even before uh, even Goebbels liked this movie. Uh, and he, a Nazi liking something a communist made—that's that's shocking. Yeah, this so this this was a movie that was widely regarded as quality cinema. I mean, so that's that is very strange to even think about. But then the flip side, of course, is this as a propaganda film was banned frequently. It was banned in the U.S. It was banned in France. It is the longest any film has been banned in the U.K. It was even banned in the Soviet Union. Wait, what? <laughs> it was banned in the Soviet Union for while, well, uh, briefly when Stalin was in power, uh, because mutiny was no longer the party line. They did not want to encourage mutiny. Oh, no more revolution in Russia. It turns out America. that it turns out that encouraging revolutionary fervor becomes a danger once you are the people people would be revolting against. Yeah. Yeah. So this is so this is a I think film it's a called Karma. Yeah. This is so this is a very inherently political film. Uh. Uh, even while it was widely acclaimed as a masterpiece of cinema. Uh, in fact, in 1958, so the Cold War is in full swing at the Brussels World Fair, it was voted as the greatest film of all time. That's a that's a, not a small award. No, it is not. Uh, so this so this really is just this a cinema piece of cinema, uh, and uh, it was it was 
initiated by, at the behest of the party leadership, to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the mutiny of the battleship Potemkin during the Russian Revolution of 1905. That's the one that didn't work. That's the one, it, it did and it didn't, and we don't want to delve too much in the history, but it is seen as something of a precursor to the more radical revolutions of 1917 when the Tsar was actually overthrown. Uh, and specifically, Lenin wanted to commemorate because it was seen as a the first indication that the soldiers and the military could be counted on to come and support the proletariat against the Tsar. Uh, that was not something that necessarily was a given, and if you go through revolutionary history and revolutionary thought, that was not something necessarily they counted on until it happened. <laughs> and so this film was was intended to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the mutiny itself during that revolution. Uh, Einstein made great use of it as he's filming it, of something called Soviet montage. Soviet cinematic theory was really hyping at this time the notion that you can use the juxtaposition of imagery to create emotional reactions in your audience without necessarily relying on plot. Uh, instead of uh, and we'll, we'll talk about this more as we uh, analyze the film, but he would juxtapose different images to create the emotional sense rather than delving on any particular characters. And so this film yeah, really... there's not a lot of characters in this movie. There's not. I mean, even the one main character, a, sail, uh, a revolutionary sailor named uh, Bakalinchuk, I am slaughtering the name, my apologies to Russians, Bakalinchuk, uh, he's not even, even he doesn't get a development, he's he is, as we'll talk about, gone halfway through the film. Uh, so it's not, uh, so it, even he doesn't get a lot of screen time. And so even when you have characters who are popping up frequently, the, the film never pauses on them long enough for you to get invested in a character. Instead, they want you to focus on how you're feeling, your response to the injustice that's happening. It's, uh, so there's a lot of this Soviet montage going on, but it's also very subtle. It may, uh, it really, he really is, that's one of the reasons this is, does stand out as a piece of great cinema, is he uses it to great effect as he tells his story. Uh, and so that's kind, that is kind of where the film, where the film's coming from, is this, this technique that Einstein in particular was a noted master of. And this is really where he's putting it to great effect to tell the story of the mutiny of the battleship Potemkin amidst the revolution of 1905. Uh, for a little context there about that 1905 revolution, uh, Tsarist Russia under Nicholas II launched a war in East Asia uh, against Japan. That, for you listeners at home, did not go well for the Russians. It went very, very badly, and it provoked the Revolution of 1905. People were already upset about uh, lack of freedom, mismanaged economy, all the usual things that go into a, starting a revolution, and then throw in a humiliating defeat against a country that they all thought they would just run over. Uh, and it turns out they didn't. In fact, they were the ones who got run over. It produced a powder keg that finally exploded in the Revolution 1905. And among the things happening is in the one remaining Russian fleet, by this point, uh, the Russian fleet has kind of been sunk. Uh, the uh, soldiers on the Potemkin, which was the largest, uh, uh, the largest and uh, most, and fastest and most advanced ship still in the fleet, revolted, uh, citing uh, 
the final straw seems to have been rancid meat being served to the men, and they mutinied and joined the revolution that was underway in the city of Odessa. And so with that little historical background, and oh, one last thing, when I say it is based on these events, that does not mean that necessarily depicts them truthfully. This is, after all, a movie. He splices things, put things together for dramatic effect. That does not necessarily mean it happened Oh, so you as mean, written. Oh, so you mean uh, that our filmmakers today are not the first people to slaughter history for the sake of a good movie? It's called Poetic License. I know. I love uh, Gladiator. Exactly. There's nothing historically accurate in Gladiator uh, in terms of the historical timeline. Absolutely not. And much the same, um, in some ways, much the same happens here. Uh, you know, the, uh, once was a dream that was wrong. I wish Marcus Relius had actually said that sentence. He didn't, but it's a great movie. It's anyway. a great line. Uh, so we'll. So with that, with that context, there, I'm gonna Bryce. Why don't you talk to us about what actually happened in the film? Okay. Uh, well, uh, as Brett walked us through some of the, uh, as you're walking us through that that historical context, here you touched on on some of it, especially what started the whole thing. The the movie opens up on the battleship Potemkin. Uh, you're getting a sense for what it's like for these sailors. Uh, they do not have a great relationship with their commanding officers. Um, one is said, well, he, he's not bad, but he's clumsy, and he lashes out at people when he makes mistakes. And so at one point, he's wandering, just kind of doing a bed check on the sailors in their cabin, and he stumbles. And instead of just kind of moving on with his life, he turns around and smacks one of the soldiers who's sleeping. Uh, and this is something, and we'll talk more about this in our uh, kind of analysis here, but uh, there's this wonderful close-up of the sailor he smacks, and you can see the hurt and pain in his eyes, the confusion of why did this just happen to him. Um, and that sets the groundwork that, you know, that's setting the groundwork for the fact that these, are, these officers and the sailors don't necessarily have a great relationship. Um, and then, as you mentioned uh, right there at the end of your, uh, kind of background for us what starts it is they start they try to get food and they realize all their meat is covered in fly larvae um it's got uh work you know basically worms all through their meat and when they complain to the officer who would be in charge of making sure they eat good meat he tells them these aren't worms they're just fly larvae you can wash it off with brine it'll be fine well, that doesn't go over well, um, and then um, and the tensions uh, further escalate when they try to feed them um, some pretty crappy borscht, um, at which point they just say, no, we're done, and they refuse to eat it. However, that doesn't escalate into the mutiny itself in the movie. What escalates is the officer's and the captain's reaction to the refusal to eat their portion of the borscht. And they actually uh, are marched out on the deck. The captain comes out there and basically says, who's refusing to eat the borscht? Pretty much the entire, uh, every non-officer sailor basically says they're not going to eat it. So he chooses out of them like 20, 20 sailors and uh, calls up the, the armed guards uh, portion of the crew and has them throw a blanket over the 20 men and is tell and orders the men to open fire. But as all of that movement's happening, our only real character of the movie, the sailor, uh, and I'm going to slaughter it worse than you did, ba uh, Bakunikuk, um, 
was how I uh, pronounced it yesterday. Russian um, listeners, please let us know how we're, how bad we're doing. Please just let us know that Brett pronounced it worse than I did. Um, but the uh, he is trying to he's talking with all the other men like no this is wrong and right before right as the uh the the guards are giving the order to fire he shouts out brothers who are you firing at and they all hesitate now suddenly to not shoot and the officers are again like no fire and they refuse to shoot and out uh breaks the mutiny um and the sailors are successful in their mutiny but right at the end right at the end uh Valkunikuk um, is shot uh, by one of the officers who's still uh, loose on the ship. Uh, and they don't even realize he had been shot yet. If they think first he just fell overboard and they're trying to get him. When they pull him back on the ship, they realize he's been shot. Um, and it's uh, this just heartbreaking uh, moment. And they sail a ship into the port of Odessa where they're outside of. And they don't have anywhere to bury him, so they put him in a tent for all, with a note for all the, the townspeople of Odessa to see. And the people of Odessa weep for this. They, they mourn completely. Um, and if you know anything about how Russian funerals are typically portrayed, they become big, long lines of mourners, all paying respects. Uh, poets in the history of Russia have been given this treatment. Well... The town of Odessa gives the sailor this treatment of just everyone turning out to pay their last respects and mourn for this man. And down in the port, though, as this grows, you start hearing the same revolutionary chatter that you heard on the ship. Um, and you start seeing people speaking out. Uh, I mean, one of the real interesting things is that it's not just men speaking out. Uh, some, very, some of the prominent shots are of women speaking out. Uh, and the revolutionary fervor is growing, um, and eventually the soldiers are sent in, and this is the famous Odessa Steps sequence, uh, where, and we'll talk more of this about the Odessa Steps sequence definitely in a little bit, but this is where the soldiers are marching down the steps and opening fire, and they're forcing the, the civilians down toward the dock to where they're just, uh, shooting, uh, you know, fish in a barrel, and, eventually the soldiers win they and they kill women children uh, it's a very brutal scene it's intentionally brutal um, however the it is put to an end when the battleship Potemkin decides to launch its guns and hit a theater which we were looking historically we're pretty sure that they launched into the city and missed their target and hit a theater but in the in the movie the theater is the headquarters for the general so they hit their target perfectly and that stopped the the slaughter uh, on the Odessa steps. Um, but now the Admiral's fleet is coming in and uh, the Potemkin is now an outlaw and they sail out towards sea at the sh ship um, with really no hope of success. They are arming everything up, but they, uh, but as they get closer and they're expecting the battle to start, the guns don't fire at them. Um, and you see all the sailors on the other ships waving their hats uh, hats at uh, at the battleship Potemkin, and there's the big triumphant uh, shout by the sailors, brothers, and they are allowed to s f uh, sail through the uh, the fleet and escape. And it's this it, in the telling of the movie is this big revolutionary victory 
um, for the battleship Potemkin, where in reality, I think they really just fled um, and managed to somehow escape before the fleet showed up. Um, but that's pretty much uh, the story. The, the story. Yeah, and it's and it's like and it's like little things like little things like that you mentioned there, like are where he deviates from history. And he did. They did have to sail through the fleet, but the fleet allowed them to leave. That was the most powerful battleship in the fleet uh, and fastest. And they basically decided. We don't want to get into a firefight with them, just let them go. So it wasn't the men in real life letting them go, it was the officers going, not today. Uh, <laughs> not today. Uh, we don't and, like our odds here. Yeah, and they did not hit, in fact, hit the general. I do think it did lead to a lull in the fighting, because everyone was like, oh, those are some big guns. Uh, but they were never fired again. Um... But yeah, you mentioned let's let's start with the Odessa steps actually, both as another historical, as a bit of a poetic license, but also of course this is the most famous scene of the film. Yeah, um, we uh, for we're both yeah. both about to bring up a couple examples, yeah. but this is something that is so important in cinematic history that even though it was made in 1925, we see nods to it in movies in the 1980s, in the early 2000s. Yeah, yeah, so it's um, the. The biggest one in the 1980s um, is, uh, hopefully you've all seen this, this is a remote drop movie for me, but it's the movie The Untouchables. Mm -hmm. uh, the fa famous uh, gunfight at the end, toward the end of the movie where they capture the bookkeeper, there's this mother who is trying to get her baby, her baby carriage, She's a, she might not be a single mother, but she's by herself. And she slowly gets the baby carriage up the steps and is about, and Kevin Costner's character comes in and helps her, gets the steps, but right as they get to the top, in comes Al Capone's men, in comes the bookkeeper, and the gunfight starts. And there's this moment of the baby carriage wobbling at the top of the steps and then finally going down the steps. And this is a nod to the uh, Odessa steps. There's a woman who's trying to get out of the mess with her baby and she's shot down um, and the baby carriage starts going down the steps and they leave it pretty open-ended in the movie whether or not the baby survived. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it implies that the baby dies. I, um, and and that is and that's and that right there what's happening there they do that with that Soviet montage, that film yeah. montage technique. You don't really pause over any characters during the sequence of events too often, and so like the baby, may, the carriage may or may not tip as the as the as in the last moment you see the carriage, we, you can't quite tell, but you are certainly left with that impression because this one bespectacled woman who we've seen a couple times during the sequence, uh, she shot. Uh, someone else is shouting like like no like watching this all like in torm in being tormented by what he's seeing so you are left with this mm -hmm. feeling of helplessness this feeling of awfulness has happened mm -hmm. so he doesn't have to show you what happened to the carriage well the baby uh, he's carriage, created a, he's created a sense and maybe of he did happened. such a he did such a good job with that that i i'm i in my brain i swear the baby carriage started moving maybe i'm wrong about that but um no, he's going down the stairs. It goes down the stairs. You just don't know what happens to the baby. Yeah. But you, it is heavily implied with everything else that goes wrong that the yeah. baby died. And that's 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 exactly yeah. what what Einstein was looking for. Uh, and you see that throughout this is because uh, in fact this is this one of the reasons it got banned was not necessarily the propaganda. It was the violence. This is actually a fairly graphic scene, certainly for its time. Mm. Uh, but even today, it's I mean like children are being stamped, uh, stampeded over, trampled by and, the crowd. They're being shot. 
Again, an old and, woman was shot in the eye. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and let's real quick uh, do the other big. Uh, let you explain the other big nod to Odessa Steps. That's uh, everyone. Pro- or, even if you haven't seen the movie, you probably have seen a clip of the scene before. Um, but it's from Star Wars. Yes, yeah, because uh, of course the other thing you we were mentioning the carriage sequence from the Odessa Steps uh, scenes where the Czarist troops are coming and massacring the town. Uh, the soldiers march down the stairs. And very much the opposite happens in Revenge of the Sith. The soldiers are marching up the stairs. But the coming of the troops to, to storm the Jedi Temple is very much a nod. And the other violence that breaks out is uh, is a very dark scene. Yeah. Uh, and I don't just mean that in terms of lighting. I mean, you know, very famously, Skywalker kills younglings. Yeah, this, so, the, so the whole thing, the whole thing, that whole sequence there is very much has its uh, has its nods to uh battleship Atemkin and the odessa step sequence uh, and that's re- and that really is the great pivotal moment of the movie it's the great moment of drama when the czarist troops come to crush the people and they do succeed in crushing the people i mean that's actually not left to, that is not it may stop but the people are massacred and in real life there was not a massacre on the odessa steps there were massacres in odessa odessa was rising in revolt the battleship Potemkin did join them. The battle of Potemkin did fire, but Einstein kind of collectively brought it all to this one place, which he saw. And you know, honestly, this actually brings up another great, great point I think about the film, which is just the sheer number of people in Odessa. It was filmed, and it was filmed there. These the people of Odessa were the extras. They were the cast yeah, of this. Film. And it, it wasn't on. This was. Um... I don't know if any scenes are, were filmed on stage, but it certainly doesn't feel like any scenes were filmed on stages. Mm-hmm. It, um, they they spent a lot of money to make this movie um, and probably used a lot of government uh, power to get a, it helps extras. You, it helps when you're the state uh, state's uh, film institute. Uh, MozFilm, of course, like like most corporations in the Soviet Union, were, belong to the state. Uh and so it, Sorry, it was, Brad, these are communists. They belong to the people. Of course, of course, <laughs> they belong to the people. Uh, but, you know, so, yeah, so, like, you, when you see, like, we, Bryce mentioned, you mentioned the, uh, the great, the great ma- lines of people coming. Th- and that's not like, oh, we have miniatures. Like, no, they have great lines mm-hmm. of people go stretching down, like, this whole walkway along the harbor. And so it is huge numbers of extras involved yeah. in this. Like, I feel like Cecil B. DeMille doing... Ten Commandments and things like that was him trying to upstage <laughs> Battleship Potemkin's efforts here. Yeah, and th- so you definitely get those senses of those kind of epics there and these kind of vast casts, I think, happening there. Uh, the And that's something that's really super impressive about it, I think, is just the sheer, uh, the sheer number of people involved in it. The, you know, to backtrack backtrack a little bit more well especially when we're on the ship but throughout it like this feels like a very modern film in a mm-hmm. lot of ways we it uh reason it had so many people because it had these huge wide shots uh, on the steps and in the city uh and even on the bridge i mean on the on the ship itself you could have some wide shots it had a lot of close-ups and we were talking about how even when you look at a lot of early modern talkies uh like as you transition on a lot of films were still filming as if they were stage productions. Oh, you didn't get those. Watch Bela Lugosi as Dracula, which is a classic film. Uh, great writing in that movie. Bela Lugosi and I uh, do not remember the gentleman who played Van Helsing in that movie, but both of those guys are acting their butts off, and it's just it creates this incredible movie. 
but the camera work is very stale. Um, and that was really common for American film um, at the time. And it's not until you get Orson Welles creating Citizen Kane do we really start to see the mixture of wide and uh, wide shots and close-ups and middle shots that Soviet montage use, uh, was already using in the 1920s, uh, in the early 1920s, um, that revol that brings that revolution to American filmmaking. Mm -hmm. So it's um, this that is something that really stands out as a really big positive for the battle uh, for Battleship Potemkin is just that kind of mixture of camera angles creating this um, again, as we would say, very modern uh, filmmakers effect. And you mentioned the montage effect there, so let's let's actually dwell on that for a bit more, because uh, we talked about it in the context of Odessa's death, but it's something he does throughout the film. Uh, I think, to me, the part that really stood out and where I really noticed it in a positive way was on, was while, during the morning and as the people are joining, mm -hmm. you mentioned the woman standing up at, at his body and uh, she's exhort, exhorting people to mm -hmm. stand up against Terrence. We have student agitators reading speeches. But you see amidst the crowd and being interspersed amongst the dialogue cards and everything, you'll see people starting to clench their fists. And this happens mm -hmm. repeatedly as they as it builds. It's like yeah. the crowd is, is, the rage of the crowd is building. And then they have it snap with somebody. So you get this sense uh, you get the sense that the crowd is agitated, not just because of the agitators, the people standing and speaking, but you've seen like all these individual fist clenching. People are with them. People are angry. And then there's this very well-to-do man who's just kind of randomly there. He's trying he's, to create a scapegoat. He's kind yeah. of trying to trying to escape. He's he's standing off to the side. There are some well-to-do people kind of off to the side, guffawing at uh, the uh, yeah. at it. And then he says. Uh, try he try he tries to uh, he says crush the Jews. He was smash the smash Jews, the Jews, yeah. and it's this very it's this very thing, and the people turn on him like instantly. Like how it's like Soviet. It's of course you know setting aside how Soviet the Soviet Union actually worked for a moment, but the ideals of the revolutionary fervor anyway mm. said there aren't distinctions between people that. That that these things are. There was a very famous Jewish section of social socialist revolutionism called the Bund. I think is what it was, I think uh, something to that effect in uh, in the Soviet revolutionary milieu prior to the revolution. So like this was seen as uh, so like this notion that he was like trying to scapegoat these people and turn them. It's like instead the people turn against him. And is this oddly what we would think of as a progressive moment? But it lines up very much with. That early revolutionary talk that we are all in this together. And it stands out even more given what happens in Europe in the late 20s throughout the 30s and, of course, through World War II with the rise of the fascists in Italy and the not, uh, and in Germany, um, which came with um, deep anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. um, and even uh, some leftist movement, uh, you know, democratic socialist movements in the West, um, even to this day have issues with uh, anti-Semitism within uh, a strain of anti-Semitism within parts of, of those movements. So the fact that the communists in the 1920s really made a point of saying that they worked mm -hmm. uh, really stood out in the movie. And it's, and it's uh, of course, unfortunately, it's it's something we still steal today across, across, across political spectrums. Uh, there are governments of all sorts and parties of all sorts that play on it. But 
uh, it was much more pronounced in the 1920s and 30s in a, and publicly acceptable mm-hmm. in a way that it's just not in Europe post-Holocaust. Right. Uh, and so having a prominent film here that was, again, critically acclaimed across the Western world uh, really does, that really is just a really notable and I think uh, important moment. And again, they fall and beat the crap out of this guy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's like, ah, the, the bur- this bourgeois, this bourgeois gets is, uh, is trying to, uh, uh, trying to uh, turn the people uh, away from the, from the rightful source of their anger, and he's trying to target the other vulnerable people. How dare he? Let's go beat him up. And they do. They beat everything the crap out of him. It was fantastic. Uh, um, and I, I want to take a, a moment just to talk about structure of the movie, um, because the structure of the movie matters a lot because there's so few, as we said, there's really only one genuine character in the movie, and he dies halfway through. Um and so what that the the structure of the film did was build a logical uh both a logical and an emotional build to triumph um the boat while it uh you know each stage of the way is uh another revolution taking hold um and each stage is seeing how that plays out and how they're interconnect. Even though there's different stages, it's the sailors, it's the people, it's the sailors on the rest of the fleet. Um, they're all interconnected. Even uh, and and I think so. You get the triumphant moment at the end, but you are built emotionally for that moment. You don't think see it as oh well, that was a get out jail free card at the end of the movie. No, it makes sense in the movie, and I think that's something that Einstein does a lot. Of deserves a lot of credit for as well is building uh, is building this momentum to triumph and i and he, he can do that in part because he's to subdivide the movie into these five parts mm-hmm. uh the uh and he and they're all named they're all very distinct parts uh people and worms is the first part and so what is it we're talking about the act the events leading to the mutiny drama on deck which is the actual mutiny uh is part two the dead man calls out is part three so that's we're focusing now on the on uh valenchuk's death and his body on display in odessa uh from there the odessa staircase which is of course the climax of the movie when the Tsarist troops uh massacre the people and then rendezvous with the squadron now we're moving toward this end the uh the moment of moment of truth for the actual mutineers who started this story for Mm -hmm. us uh, so it's it's uh he he does it very successfully by dividing the movie and telling kind of essentially these five intercon five parts of the story. Each one has is very focused but interconnected with what came before and what yeah. comes after. And and I guess let's move kind of into the more um or more dislikes or more problematic parts yeah. of the movie. Because obviously um, we obviously we were impressed by a lot here. Yeah, we were we, we absolutely were. Um, and I kind of had two things uh, I guess that I. I circled over watching it and one is the lack of a main character and and this may not hurt as much just because of it being a silent film um in the talkies in particular uh having actual characters to latch on to um helps drive emotionally uh plots forward uh, but of course they can actually speak and it's not just us reading the text on on, on a screen uh so 
that's somewhat, I think, minimized by that. But that was something that I do think um, you, in the hands of a lesser filmmaker, um, would have been very problematic. Yeah. Uh, I, I absolutely agree, agree on that. And I think it works, I think, again, because Einstein is so skilled with the montage technique. He allows... Mm -hmm the ensemble of just the people to drive the story uh, without too without having to focus on too many characters. And of course, there are like individuals who at moments we follow for a bit, uh, but there's never, there is no central character drive interaction. So it, it's, it, it would be hard to pull off, I think, in any other context. There's not a lot of films I can think of, mm -hmm. uh, talky or even silent, that successfully pull off a, a, a movie without an, a central character. So... That, I think that is, uh, I, I, but I do, I broadly agree though. I think the, I think my biggest, my biggest thing about it is it is definitely a propaganda film. Yeah, that, that was my other, that was yeah. my other major thing too. Is, yeah, it's definitely yeah. a propaganda film. Uh, it is at times quite heavy handed in its propaganda, mm -hmm. uh, especially, frankly, Val Valenchuk. Uh, and I, I think we've pronounced his name differently every time we've said it. I, but, think, so. I think so. Uh, but he, uh, v. yeah. You should have just called him V the whole time. Uh, well, him. that's a different movie. Uh, but, uh, about another revolution. Uh, but, like, him, like, as he exhorts the men, like, he, even before, like, the actual mutiny happens, he's starting to agitate. He's clearly a Bolshevik, uh, mm. you know, brothers, we must rise up and be with the people. And it's like, this, it's like, or you could be rising up because there's worms in the meat. Uh, and instead, he, he had to put in... The agitation yeah. for the, for the revolution does, revolution there. And Einstein really does have his cake and eat it too here. He's he does both. It's well The, the meat is rancid. Uh, the, the meat <laughs> is rancid, and that definitely prompts most of the men to join uh Val uh Valkunik. Again, I think it's another yet another pr uh, pronunciation. Um and and that definitely prompts him to join, but yeah, he's definitely already there before even the meet starts. I mean, and there are moments where I just kind of laugh. It's like just because it is mm -hmm. so kind of obvious and and blatant. Uh, but so it, it does, like I said, it does manage to rise above being a mere yeah. propaganda film. But it it just definitely is a propaganda yeah. film, and that I shows. Mean, and of course, you know, and I, you know, and we're gonna knock that because obviously we're not communist, but the. Um, but of course, there's plenty of classic American films that are absolutely propaganda films. I mean, anyone who's ever watched Tron should actually come away going, "This is actually a anti-communist propaganda film." Oh, this and it's, absolutely. And it's heavy-handed. It um, also, though, happens to be a masterpiece of sci-fi. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, Green Beret, starring John Wayne, is um, you know it might not have been made by the government, but it was definitely a propaganda movie in favor of the Vietnam War. Um, so, so, I mean, we, we have them too, so we don't, uh, you know, I don't want to knock them too much on it. It is possible to make a film that is both propaganda and good. It and is hard, but, and this and, is one of those cases. And it's, of course, the limitations of your dialogue being done through, uh, screen cards, mm -hmm. uh, rather than actual spoken dialogue means you're going to end up with something more stilted and everything. But that doesn't change the fact that at the end of the day, the sailors just standing there sprouting some, uh, some socialist, uh, mantras before the before they have their revolt just to say oh yes of course uh the uh I, interestingly of course they did fly the red flag they did do the tinted effect on the film so the flag is actually red when they fly it over the ship uh the uh at least in our version of it that we our restored version we were watching uh i 
I am reasonably confident that was done during the original. Mm -hmm. Tinted effects were not uncommon in right. films, uh, so that's that would have been perfectly the norm. Um, the, but yes, overall, really, it's it's definitely worth your time to watch this film. It's an excellent, yeah, it's an excellent, it's an excellent war movie, basically. We're, uh, you know, we're obviously starting our silent film podcast with this, but if you are wanting to start a journey into silent film yourself, this is a great example to start with. Um, for all the reasons that we have talked about here today, but so it's really high class. Yeah, absolutely. Is. There's a reason we still have it. Why we have a DVD version of it today? Yeah, I mean, even if you go and look at more modern list of what the greatest film of all time is, will it be number one? No. There's, in fact, the same year. No, Casablanca is at the top of that list. Thank you very much. Uh, I mean, in the very year that this that it was voted the greatest movie of all time, that's when uh, Citizen Kane got its re-release, <laughs> and it began to be thought of as one of the greatest films of all time, and usually still tops the list of greatest film of all time. Uh, as much as I agree that Casablanca should be number one, it's almost always Citizen Kane. Uh, so, yeah, other films have come out that we now widely regard as better. But uh, this is still on the list. It's, you're still going to, if you find a top hun a one a top 100, you'll still find it in there. Uh, so this was a fantastic film. Still is a fantastic film. Really well made. Really, uh, the Soviet montage technique is often criticized, but this is not a place where you will find that criticism too much. I think this is really a moment where that film strategy really, really flourished and to great effect. And as a reminder, I think also one of the great things about silent film as a whole, it was a very international time in, in cinema. It, it helps when you don't have to dub a whole movie yeah. when dialogue, so you're able just to translate the, the title cards that are happening. And so this is, this is just a reminder, I think, of just how great the international reach of movies were in that time. As we go through films, we have we have chosen a number of films to go through for next, and I don't know if any of them are actually American films off the top of my head in this first run of films. Uh, um, no, but our next week one uh, uh, did survive because of American films. Uh, we uh, so Brett, you want to introduce uh, what we're doing next week? Then? Yeah, so next next week uh, when uh, or not next we're week, next but two, next sorry, time next in two weeks uh, when you're back will be Halloween, and we're going to do Nosferatu, the great um, masterpiece of uh, German horror and silent film. And we'll, uh, it's, as Bryce has said, it, it had a bit of a journey to survive to us today. So we'll, it's going to be a fun, fun uh, watch uh, for us. Now, uh, once again, uh, you can, of course, uh, find us on Twitter at uh, Silence, uh, Silence Gold Pod, or you can email us at silenceisgoldenpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, Bryce, where else can they find you? And you can follow me at jbryceodom.com, uh, and there's also... Uh, my YouTube channel, J Bryce Odom underscore author, and then well, I didn't mention these earlier, but there's also Instagram and Facebook. You can find me both of those. Uh, Instagram is J Bryce at J Bryce Odom underscore author, and Facebook is just J period Bryce Odom. So uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, but you can find all those links on the website too. So uh, uh, check out all of it. Go ahead, please, <laughs> and buy my books. All right, thank. <laughs> Thank you, Bryce. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, that's going to be it for us today. Uh, it's been a great discussion. It's been a great uh, first episode, and uh, we will be back in your podcast feed in two weeks. Thanks, and have a great day. Bye.